0: Join me in a word of prayer before we have this morning's message. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we are on the second most popular, searched for verse. According to BibleGateway.com, we've been doing the top 10 search for verses, uh, and uh, I I trust it's been fun for you. I've had a lot of fun during this kind of series in the summer, uh, taking a look at all of these famous verses. Um, And probably, for some of you, what's happened is I've crushed some of your views of some of those verses, uh, because you had a certain idea, a certain understanding of that verse, and and then when you throw it into its context, into its historical context, it kind of takes away some of the feel about it somehow for some of us sometimes. Um, And that's not at all what I intend to do. (laughs) I am kind of a subversive personality, I'm finding. But uh, today, the verse is probably going to also be one that uh, you find encouragement and strength from, but when you throw it into its context, I hope and pray that it'll actually become more encouraging and more strengthening for you. And I also hope and pray that it'll correct any uh, misunderstandings or any strange notions we have about this verse. Have you ever felt like an exile in your life? Like uh, you were a resident alien someplace. Perhaps uh, you lived in the city for a while. I know sometimes us rural folks, we, we tend to feel like a fish out of water in the city. Yeah, I, I did refer to myself as a rural folk. Um, and maybe you, you lived in the city for a while and you just found it hard to get used to the traffic, the hustle and bustle, the busyness, all the options of the city. And it just didn't appeal to To you very much. Maybe you lived back east where there's trees everywhere and you got kind of a claustrophobic feeling like I do when you can't see the next five, ten miles of the highway where you're going. In fact, one time we went down to see Marnie's grandfather in Houston, Texas, and he lived in a place called the Woodlands because there was woody land there. Yeah, go figure. And we came down this highway that was just, you know, it was four lane highway and it was cut through the trees. And then all of a sudden you turn this corner and there's a huge super Walmart that you couldn't see till you turned the corner. Just blew my mind. It was so claustrophobic for me because I have always lived where you can see for miles and miles. And I felt like a fish out of water. I felt a little bit like a resident alien. I mean, I know what Walmart's like and I know what Houston's like and I really like barbecue like they had in Houston, but I wouldn't choose to live there. And it was hot and sticky and humid. I wouldn't choose to live there. Uh, Perhaps in our own culture, you feel like everything is becoming very liberal And the movement of the government, of all the institutions in our country, the media, everything else is very much shifting towards the left. And perhaps you feel like a resident alien in your own nation and you think, boy, if we could just get spending under control, if we could just go back to some conservative ideals and ideologies, if we could return back to some of those notions, then I would feel more at home maybe you are more on the other side of the spectrum and you feel like our country is trying to be taken over by conservatives and Christians. And see, here's the weird thing about it. In our day and age, people on both sides of the spectrum feel like the other side is winning and the other side is trying to undo and overtake our country. And so in a very real sense, both sides feel Like exiles or aliens. It's very strange. You would never think that this could happen in our day and age. But increasingly, people are feeling more and more like resident aliens right where they live. This passage that we're going to take a look at is found in the book of Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah the prophet would not have ever won a popularity contest in his day and age. Jeremiah the prophet was not at all liked by the people of Israel. He had what Bill Hybels called a very tough calling. Imagine, if you will, preaching, sharing what you believe God has laid upon your heart and doing this year after year after year. After year and nobody listening to you. Could you imagine that? I can. Yeah. <laughs> could, could you imagine sharing again and again and again the words that you feel God has placed on your heart, what God has in fact is not even it's not even a God placed this on my heart, God gave me these words. It is it, it's in a whole different genre. It's what we call prophecy. And when Jeremiah spoke, he said, thus saith the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, it sounds a little different. And you can actually translate it. This is what the Lord says. And it's interesting because when you read what he says, he doesn't say this is what the Lord says. He says that as shorthand. He usually says, thus saith the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the God of the angel armies. This is not the Mr. Rogers' neighborhood God. This is not the senile old grandfather. hope you had a good day, God. This is commander in chief God. This is God who is offended and angry and has a bone to pick with his people, Israel. They are not living up to the standards of the covenant, and he is angry. He is enraged, and he is about to do something about it. In fact, most of the book leading up to chapter 29, which is where we're going to jump in, Jeremiah is sharing over and over and over and over and over and over again with the people. If you do not return to God, then you will be destroyed. They should have listened because the interesting thing was... Jeremiah is sharing with the people of Judah. Now, if you know anything about biblical history or even world history, you know that after Solomon's reign of Israel, Israel became a divided kingdom. It became divided into two nations. One was Israel, which was up in the north, and the other was Judah, which was down in the south. And Israel up in the north has already been drug off into captivity, they've already been destroyed. And God waited a little bit longer with Judah because they had some good kings. They had a few good years. And partly because Jerusalem, the capital, was also in Judah. But by the time Jeremiah is sharing this, Israel has gone. It's in exile. And Judah is next. Unless they turn back to God what we're going to pick up is where they've already been destroyed. It happened in 597 BC, about 2,600 years ago. The children of Judah, the tribes of Judah, the people of Judah were taken into exile into the nation of Babylon, into the city of Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Sam if you would skip the Bible reading, and there's a picture that shows you uh, what happened to them and where they went. So they were in Judah, in Jerusalem, and nobody crossed the Arabian Desert. That was just a really dumb idea. And so they went up along the rivers, the Euphrates. And so Nebuchadnezzar would have marched his army, his armies, and he went down through the northern kingdom, and he came down into the southern kingdom, and he took the best and the brightest of Judah, and he took them back home to Babylon some 800 miles. That's the check; that didn't have cars, didn't have trains, didn't have planes. And so he marched these people. In fact, we were told that some of them were marched with a fish hook in their mouth. It's a good way to get somebody to go the way you want them to go, especially if they don't want to go that way. And they marched the Judah... The nation of Judah back to Babylon into captivity. This letter that we're going to read, we jump into a letter. And it was written by Jeremiah, who is back in Jerusalem. And he has gone through the trouble of finding two messengers to take this message to, the, to Judah in Babylon. This must be an important letter. Because they didn't have UPS. Or the postal service, this is an important letter from God for the people to hear jeremiah twenty nine we're going to start in verse four and work our way down through verse fourteen. The actual verse that is the second most looked for verse is jeremiah twenty nine eleven see if it jumps out at you starting in verse four this is what the Lord almighty The God of Israel says, don't you love how he builds it up? He could have just said, this is what God says. This is what the Lord says. But no, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, you know, this is like, this is not good news. He says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. That's a really weird passage to have this nice, big, rosy promise from God in, isn't it? in fact i 've struggled for most of the last two weeks trying to get my head around this because did you catch jeremiah twenty nine eleven in there? Some of you have probably even memorized it. Maybe you have a, a greeting card or a poster or something at home that has that verse and it 's got some butterflies or a unicorn on it or something <laughs> and it says, "For I know the plans I have for you." did you know is in the context of a letter to exiles in Babylon? Strange. And the question I kept wrestling with all this couple last weeks was why? Why is this in here? What's going on? And to get there, we need to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. What's going on is that Jeremiah has gone out of his way to send this letter 800 miles to the exiles, and he's got good reason to send it. You see, back in Jeremiah 25... He has been pronouncing judgment against the children of Israel, but they didn't like what he had to say. Anybody got someone like that in their life? Maybe a spouse or oldest child, (laughs) you know, or a boss. Those people that just have those difficult things that they tell us in life. And the worst is sometimes you know they're right. Well, Jeremiah was that guy. And nobody liked what he had to say. So what do we do when we don't like what somebody says? We go find somebody else who says stuff we like to hear. Kids do this all the time, don't they? Mom and dad, son, don't do that. That's a horrible idea. What do they do? They go find friends. Oh, yeah, I think that's a great idea, man. It'd be awesome. They find somebody who will affirm what they want to do. This happens to us all the time, like when we're trying to make decisions in life and we don't like maybe what the counsel of a pastor or the Bible or those kind of things say. And we go find other people to say what we want to hear. And the folks that lived in Judah didn't like what Jeremiah was saying. So they found other prophets and they're like, you know what? You're going to be drugged into captivity, but it's not going to last too long. It's Not going to be that bad. In fact, they found this one prophet. And he had said to them, in two years, the yoke of the Babylonians will be thrown off you. In fact, he went so far. uh, Jeremiah had a yoke on him to kind of be a word picture that, that God told him, wear this yoke around. It'll kind of demonstrate to Judah what's going to happen to them. This prophet went so far as to grab that yoke off of him and throw it down and break it. This wooden yoke that was on Jeremiah. And he said, in two years, that's what's going to happen to Babylon. There's going to be some kind of war or catastrophe or uh, uh, or an earthquake, something that God's going to do. And he's going to free you from Babylon. That's good news, right? But it's not true. In fact, Jeremiah wanted so much to correct this. He had this letter sent 800 miles and his counsel was vastly different. Not two years. You're going to be here for 70 years. There's a Psalm that basically says um, the human life lasts for 70 years, sometimes 80. In other words, this is a Hebrew way of saying you're going to be there the rest of your life. Those of you who are drugged into captivity, you're going to die in Babylon. That's not terribly exciting, God. What about the two years? Go back home. I really like that prophecy. I'd rather hear in two years you go home rather than you're going to die and your gravesite is going to be in a foreign land. You're not going to rest in the tomb of your ancestors. You're not going to be buried next to your grandparents, your great-grandparents. You're going to be buried in Babylon, a pagan nation. God's starting to bum me out a little bit here. In fact, Jeremiah goes further and he says, don't listen to those prophets that are saying things that you are telling them to say. Listen to God. And God says you're going to be there for 70 years. So what should you do? Since you're in exile. And this is where it starts applying to our lives, because we all, in some sense, are exiles in this world. The New Testament picks up on this idea where 1 Peter, written by Peter, a follower of Jesus, says that we are resident aliens in this world. He actually uses that word twice in his letter. You are resident aliens in this world. And what he means by that is this. This message of Jesus, the gospel, is never, ever going to be readily received by the vast majority of people in this world. It's just not going to be appreciated by the world, by the culture. You're always going to be alien. Trouble is, you don't have a spaceship to fly to Mars. You're stuck here. This is your address. This is your residence for this life, these 70 some years or so. How do we live as resident aliens? Now, this is a fascinating text because at this text in Jeremiah 29, all biblical scholars agree a huge shift in God's salvation plan happens in this text. Before this time, (laughs) this thing's a little lopsided, isn't it? Maybe it'll fall over. That'd be exciting. Before this time, God's plan looked like this. Any science people out there? Mr. O is not here with us today, so he won't be able to check my terminology. Jerusalem, throughout the Old Testament, seems to be like the center of the world and the center of God's salvific plan. And if you think about it, well, the idea that kept happening throughout Scripture was that the, the nations will be drawn to Jerusalem. They will be drawn in. It's called centripetal force, Right. You all knew that it's a centripetal force that will draw all the nations into Jerusalem because they will see these folks in Jerusalem. There's no wild animals near their homes. Kids don't go outside and play and get bit by a venomous snake. How does that work? They actually take the seventh year off completely. Nobody harvests anything. Nobody even reaps anything. Nobody sows anything. Nobody works on the seventh year and yet they had enough food to see them through that seventh year and they're still eating it when they started harvesting the eighth year. If somebody in this world said that they could create such an amazing surplus of crops where you didn't have to irrigate it, you didn't have to Cultivate it. You, you, you all you had to do was sow it, and then show up. I don't know, several months later, and harvest, and you got a hundredfold. Wouldn't that be a good thing? And if that was happening in Ray, do you think folks, even from Yuma and other cities, would come to investigate and find out how are you making this happen? How come how come locust isn't eating all your crops? What how is it that you are so successful? And that was the idea in the Old Testament that everybody would be drawn to Jerusalem, to Israel, and they would be drawn to worship this God because they saw how he was blessing his people. But here in Jeremiah 29, something interesting happens. It's called centrifugal force takes place where it is now the people are cast out from Jerusalem and placed into Babylon. And they're going to be there the rest of their lives. And it's like God has shifted gears in his plan of how he's operating in the world. And the people have been cast out of Jerusalem and they're now in Babylon. And how are they to live? Well, there's a couple ways you can live when you're, not someplace that's your home. We see this in our culture all the time. There's a couple ways to live. One is to remain separate. So you got the Jerusalem sphere, Judah, and you got the Babylon sphere, and to have as little contact with each other as possible. So instead of learning Babylonian, you keep speaking Hebrew. And you try not to interact with these people as... Much as possible. You don't interact with them. You have as little dealings with them as possible. And you set up what in the traditional sense of the word was a ghetto. You live in your own little ghetto with other Hebrews. And you'd stay away from these people. Another way to do it is to assimilate. In fact, our culture, our our country is This principle at work, the great American melting pot. You were assimilated at one point. Your ancestors were assimilated. You, your ancestors, were not originally here. Some of you might be second or third generation Americans. On my grandma's side, I'm a fourth generation American. On my grandfather's, on my dad's side... I don't know how many generations we were here before the Revolutionary War, but my great grandmother came from Norway and spoke Norwegian. Guess who can't speak a lick of Norwegian? Guess who doesn't want to speak Norwegian? And I knew my—we called her little grandma because she was ten feet tall. And are you guys still with me? You guys still. We call her little grandma. And I remember when she passed away and I remember sitting at her funeral. And I remember that she would speak in Norwegian. I didn't understand a word that she said. Why? What had happened to me? I had been assimilated. Instead of being separate and we're going to be Norwegian in America. My family decided there are huge benefits if we become Americans. If we learn English, if we go to their schools, if we take their jobs, if we start being like Americans, we will advance ourselves. And that's what we did. And that's what your ancestors at some point did as well. But God's plan for Jerusalem is neither of those plans. Neither of those work for God. Neither of those are good responses as a resident alien. You see, if we stay separate, then you're not going to have any impact on Babylon. You're not going to have any impact on the culture around you. None whatsoever. We know some of these people. We call them backward, right? I grew up in a church that was a tad backward. Sometimes we wanted to not be of the world. And so our fashion sense came from about 20 years behind. We didn't want to be of the world. And so we just shunned particular aspects of culture. Like TV and movies and music. We wanted to remain separate. And so we just said, bad, horrible. And the people that enjoy that stuff, bad, horrible, horrible. Guess what our impact on the local folks around our church was? Diddly squat. In fact, we had a repulsive ministry. You ever been to one of those churches? You know you're at one when you feel repulsed, okay? We just, we had a a knack for just driving people away from church all the time. And that's not plans for Jerusalem that God has. The other is to be assimilated and to become less like a Hebrew. To forget the language, to take on Babylonian names. In fact, that happens in the book of Daniel. Do you remember Daniel's real name? Daniel was his Hebrew name. He was named a Babylonian. His name was Belteshazzar, which means my God is is Baal. I don't know how you get that from that, but Belteshazzar was his Hebrew or his Babylonian name. And he has some buddies. And they were thrown in a fiery furnace. Do you remember their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they'd be really mad that those are the names you remember them by. Because those were their Babylonian names. Those aren't their Hebrew names. That's a bummer, right, for them? And so they were thrown in the fiery furnace. Why? Because they refused to assimilate. They refused to become... Babylonian. Now they weren't so different that they were separate that nobody noticed them. Because if you aren't noticed, you'll never be thrown in the fiery furnace. But they were interacting enough. In fact, it tells us in Daniel that they were actually some of the advisors to the king. They were actually involved in politics in Babylon as Hebrews. And they were thrown into the furnace by the king because they refused to worship the Babylonian God. They refused to become 110% total Babylonian. You see, God's plan is that we would be, as I call it, missional. We don't remain separate. We don't assimilate to the point that people can't tell a difference between us and others, but we are missional where people can see that there's something different about you, about me, and it makes them want to chat with us and find out how come you can handle death and grief the way you do. Because when somebody dies, they're just gone, right? They're forever gone. We'll never see them again. How come you talk about hope? What does that mean to you? How come when you lost your job, you just didn't freak out like the rest of us? And you just had this confidence, this strength that somehow, some way God would provide for you. Why is it that you stay married to him? If it was me, I mean, golly, you have put up with so much. Why? How come you refuse to look at women as objects and see them the way the rest of culture and society and men see them. Where do you get these ideas, these notions that are countercultural to the rest of us? What is up with you giving away money to a church of all places? You see, our countercultural lifestyle should be distinctly different from the culture around us. And the idea is that it would be missional. It would draw people to Jesus Christ. You get that from this text in Jeremiah 29. You see, the most shocking verse in this passage is where he says, pray for Babylon. Do you know how they prayed for Babylon before they lived in Babylon? Psalm 137. May God destroy Babylon. He didn't do it. In fact, now they live in Babylon. He, he didn't listen to their prayer in Psalm 137. It's kind of interesting. They live now in Babylon, and they're told to pray for Babylon to prosper. Babylon to experience shalom. The word shalom in the Hebrew is, number one, a fun word to say. So everybody with me, shalom. Don't you just feel so? Shalom. It's like it just comes upon you when you say shalom. And in Hebrew, that means peace, wholeness, wellness, goodness, every good and perfect theme, perfection. It's really hard to translate into English. There is no good word. Other than this, every single awesome, wonderful, great, beautiful, fantastic, awesome thing that you want to have happen to your life in your city, that's what they're supposed to pray for. Shalom. It's so much easier to have one word. They're told to pray for Shalom of Babylon. Are there any cities in your mind that you don't care for much? I don't know. One comes to mind is 30 minutes east of us sometimes. At least athletically, right? West of us? East? Yeah, I get confused. Because the mountains aren't anywhere near us anymore. <laughs> Me anymore. Pray for the prosperity of the Yuma football team, Steve. What? Excuse me? I don't think you're speaking my language, God. Pray for the prosperity of these folks that you have seen as a rival. Pray for the Oakland Raiders folks. And I actually have to do that sometimes. Pray for Dodgers fans. Pray for them to prosper, to be blessed and well fed and experience every good and perfect gift that comes down from God. Pray for Pray for Iran. And that it would be blessed and that it would prosper. Pray for your enemies in Iraq. Pray for the cities, that it would be blessed and that it would prosper. You see why this is such a crazy prayer? I ain't going to do that. Let's get that other guy who said we're coming home in two years. Instead, he says, if Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. Your prosperity isn't linked to faith. Your prosperity isn't linked to some magic formula. Your prosperity is linked to your hard work for the folks in Babylon. So as alien, as resident aliens in America, as resident aliens here on earth, you and I, the church, are called to work for the prosperity, to pray for the prosperity of our city. Even the neighbors you don't like. Even the folks that you feel most alien around. And this is why you need verse 11. Because when you hear this in its context, when you hear that you're stuck here as a resident alien for 70 years, there will be pain, there will be hardship, you will lose people, you will lose Battles, you will lose opportunity. There will be broken relationships. Horrible things will happen to you and to me here. It's not the way it was meant to be. Resident aliens here. No escape. And that can be very disconcerting. Disconcerting. And when we're told that we can't separate from the culture and from the ways of the world, and when we're told that we can't assimilate into the culture and the ways of the world, when we're told to look different and stick out, we instantly flash back to junior high school, don't we? When we didn't want to be different, we wanted the same shoes that every other kid wore, because if we wore the wrong shoes, we stuck out. He would make fun of us. We wanted to know the right people and not hang out with the wrong kids at the wrong lunch table. We wanted to shun them like everybody else because we didn't want to stick out. And here it says, God wants you to stick out on purpose. Purpose. He wants you to look different on purpose, wants you to take risks, look different than the rest of the culture. And this is more than just where you spend an hour on a Sunday. This is every day looking different. Jesus put it this way. If you're going to be my disciple... I want you to consider the cost. And the cost is to take up your cross and follow me. Last I checked, crosses have splinters in them. Last I checked, crosses are a device that people die on. You see, you need verse 11 So you will keep going. In verse 4, did you notice what God says? The land I carried you to. That's really weird, isn't it? I thought it was King Nebuchadnezzar. I thought it was the Babylonians. No, it's the land I, the Lord, carried you to. You see, a lot of the bad things that happen in our lives are completely and totally being orchestrated by God to help us to become who he wants us to be. Why? Because I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Sometimes it can feel like he's trying to harm us, can't it? I mean, if we're really honest. Uh, I know for me, there are times I feel like God's plan for me is to ruin my life. It just feels that way. Because I'd much rather live off of 110% of my income as opposed to 80 or so. I would much rather not give money away. I would, if I'm really honest. I would much rather not have dilemmas of, is this person worthy of giving them money or not? Should I hand this out to them? Are they just going to go squander it? Are they go make bad choices? I would much rather just, you know, I'm not a generous person. Deal with it. Sorry. I'd much rather not have to wrestle through what God wants me to do with my life. Because I've got some great plans for my life. One of them is to minister in Hawaii. I like Ray and all, but I really like Hawaii. And so far, he hasn't spoken that quiet whisper into my soul that, Steve, it's time to leave Ray and go to Hawaii. I don't like that sometimes. Especially when I have to have hard conversations with some of you. God, just let me go to Hawaii because everybody there is nice. And they just hang loose, man. And and sometimes I would much rather consider my plan for my life than God's plan for my life because sometimes His plan messes up my life and messes up your lives. We could have kept the pews if I didn't listen to God. We, we, we could have kept as a smaller church if we didn't pay attention to God. We wouldn't have this notion that God might want us to build something. We didn't listen to Him. It could be so much more comfortable Is that the life you want. Choices before you. You can find a pastor that will say, two more years and it will be over. Those people are out there. Those people are out there who will tell you what you want to hear. Or we can keep listening to God's words to us. You're resident aliens. It's not easy, but I know the plans I have for you. The choice is before you and I. So may you. Risk it. For God. May you not. Choose selfishness. And living for yourself. And your own stuff. And your own kingdom. And may you not choose to be separate. And look down your nose. at People different than you. May you. Be graced by God to live a life that is infectious. That people are drawn to you and want to know Christ because of your life. And may you trust that every hardship you have, God knows the plan he has for you. And Now may the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace as you swim upstream, as you make waves, as you follow him.